0: What I typically say to people that are that are looking at an, an industrial real estate, and I abide by this myself with my own criteria, is to always consider that downside risk first. And the exercise that I go through is what is that property worth if it's vacant? Even if there's a 10-year tenant in there, uh, that's fine. Hopefully that tenant stays solvent for that whole 10 years and you collect your rent without any issue. But what happens if that tenant did go bankrupt or they had to close down or they got bought out and they merged? There's so many variables that could influence them staying in that building. What happens if they do have to leave? And the exercise that I'd go through is what do you need to do in that building to make it approachable or or rentable for the general industrial base? Uh, To take it back to just the normal call it a shell uh, and then build up some improvements in there and whatever that number is that's what you should be factoring into your investment decision because that's your risk that's your property level risk
1: your network is your net worth come listen to some of the most successful people i know share invaluable knowledge stories and advice in real estate business and beyond this is weiss advice Whether you want to take your business or personal life to the next level, look no further. Welcome back to another episode of Weiss Advice. I am your host, as always, Yona Weiss. So excited to be here today with Chad Griffiths. It's not every day or not every episode that we get to speak with a Canadian, but we're happy to have you. And how are you doing today, Chad?
0: I'm doing really well. uh, Thanks, Yona. And uh, yeah, I'm guessing it's probably worldwide news about what's going on in Canada with the trucker convoy and just general upheaval. Uh, That's on the other side of Canada for me. So I'm pretty removed from it being in Western Canada. But it uh, definitely is an interesting time to be alive in general. That's for sure.
1: It certainly is. You're absolutely right about that. I mean, we, fortunately, we're probably going to release this episode shortly after we record it. Otherwise, it may not uh, be as relevant <laughs> current news as, uh, as, Sometimes it would be if we're talking about something. But yeah, it's it's incredible what's going on in the world right now. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that, but I'd love to, you know, kind of give a little bit of a background to our listeners before we jump right in. Uh, give us a little background. I mean, I know you are an industrial real estate broker, something you've been doing for a very long time, and have a lot of experience in the space and are the host of an incredible podcast called The Industrial Real Estate Podcast. So you guys check that out. Uh, It's on YouTube and all other platforms. So uh, give us a little background on how you got into industrial real estate.
0: Yeah, thanks, Yona. And and it was an honor to have you on that show as well, where we talked about podcasting and tips that people could do to either get into podcasting or be a guest on it. I love that interview. So uh, thanks again for uh, being a guest and bringing that up. Yeah, Uh, I started
1: in. We'll put a a link to that. I was just going to say, we'll put a link to that episode in the show notes over here, because I agree. I think I got a lot of feedback from that as well, that. You know, we shared simple and you know, steps and tips to people that want to be a good guest on podcasts. And uh, you know, I, I think a lot of value from that. So thanks. So sorry to interrupt you. Go right ahead. How'd you get into no, no, that, that was
0: Great addition to that as well. Cause I agree. It, it was, it was a great episode. And I really enjoyed that one. So I started in uh, 2004, actually, I, I originally had bought and sold a couple houses with some friends, didn't really make a lot of money on it, but saw an opportunity to do it as a profession. So I joined as a, as a residential agent in 2004, did it for a year. Didn't really see a long-term Outlook for it on something that I could do for a long time and be passionate and be happy about. So I transitioned to industrial real estate in 2005. So I guess we're 17 years now, which is kind of crazy to think about that that I've been doing the same thing at the same company now for 17 years. Wow. Uh, And along the way, I started actually buying uh, properties myself. Uh, So I bought the first one with a partner in 2014. And with various other partners, we've since added a property every year. Uh, so we've got a, a decent portfolio going right now. And, and the goal is to continue adding one as long as banks continue to let us borrow money.
1: <laughs> and are those all those properties that you've invested in over the years? Are they all in Canada? And should I, I just guess follow-up question on that is, is your brokerage focused solely in Canada?
0: Well, so I'm with a company called NAI, which actually is a global company. There right. are offices all over the world. I'm pretty sure we have an office in in Israel, if I'm not mistaken as well. Uh definitely are a lot in the East Coast. So where you travel back and forth in yeah. New Jersey, we're heavy presence there. We're a franchise, though. So it's we're a local, locally gotcha. owned office. There's five partners, uh myself and four others that own the brokerage, and we just pay a franchise fee to to NAI, gotcha. and we get to benefit from the power of the network, having offices all over, and just being able to call somebody up that we know is affiliated with the company. Uh, but yeah, we we mostly focus on industrial real estate, which was how I actually got into the industry. I didn't even really know what industrial real estate was when I wanted to get into it. I I thought office towers and shopping centers, and you know that glamorous commercial real estate right. that people think of and the office is just the the roots going back all the way to 1966 have been heavy and industrial so it's just serendipitously I've stumbled into industrial real estate and that's what I've focused on my properties that that I've invested in are all within a 15 minute drive of my office and that's partly just from comfort level, I know the market really well. I get opportunities that come across my desk that as a broker. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. as a broker. And and I just I feel most comfortable with having it in my backyard essentially, where I can zip over to a property if I needed to. I can keep a close eye on things firsthand perspective as opposed to relying on a property manager in another city. So it's, it's worked for me. It's not necessarily the best strategy for everybody. Some people like to diversify and not be specifically invested in one market. Uh, right. but for me, it's, it's worked well. So you're in British
1: Columbia, that, that, that market
0: one province over I'm in an Alberta. So Alberta, it's, uh, okay. yeah, if you're familiar, like Banff and Jasper, like some of those, the Canadian Rockies there, I'm sure. not far from, from there.
1: Okay. Yeah. Awesome. We actually had, uh, uh, one previous guest on the show from Alberta, uh Ava Benisaki, who now she's in Vancouver, uh the multifamily Canadian passive investing group. But yeah, she was originally from Alberta. So that's that's great. Great to great to hear that, you know, there's really, you know, industrial real estate everywhere. And really, real estate is is. It's a worldwide, it's a global thing. But maybe, you know, you mentioned like, you did not really know what industrial real estate was. Well, why don't you give our listeners just a background? Like, what is industrial real estate? I know it's gotten a lot of news lately in different forms and has become one of the most popular asset classes out there of late. But give us a little kind of breadth uh, in depth of what, what industrial real estate encompasses?
0: Yeah, that's a great question because you're right. There, in the 17 years that I've been in this industry, I've never seen so much attention given to industrial real estate where before I'd had to try and explain to my family or friends what I was even doing for a living. Uh, and now it's it's on top of everybody's mind because we see these big distribution centers, which used to be tucked away in a business park. So off the main road, unless you had a reason to go into these business parks, you'd never even see these buildings. Mm-hmm. But now we're seeing these distribution Centers and big buildings, major roads, close to airports. I'm sure it's the same in in Israel. I know in New Jersey and New York, there the development that's underway is incredible everywhere. So it's it's become a lot more common. Uh, but I, I think that's a natural point, actually break industrial real estate into a couple of subcategories. So that warehousing side or the distribution centers, or I think Amazon calls them fulfillment centers. These are big warehouses where things are stored in there and they might be sorted or repackaged. Trucks bring the product in, perhaps a whole bunch of products at one time, they get repackaged into smaller ones and get sent out to another one. These are the big warehouse properties, and it can be anywhere from a million square foot warehouse all the way down to a 10,000 square foot building that's just designed to store things. The next category would be manufacturing properties. And you could also think of these as like a factory. And the factory goes back to the Industrial Revolution. There's us actually reading a book the other day about Richard Arkwright, who invented the water frame. Uh, But what he's uh, perhaps even more known for is the idea of making a factory, about bringing a whole bunch of people to one building. This was in the 1700s, late 1700s. He had 200 people working in a building, just weaving the yarn. So that factory idea of manufacturing things, anything could be made. It could be that water frame of spinning yarn 250 years ago, all the way up to something more modern. Such as the Boeing factory, which the outside of Seattle, it's in Everett, Washington. Uh, it's a four million square foot building. To like wrap your head around how big four million square feet is, it is it is almost incomprehensible to visualize. But it's a four million square foot building where all the raw materials come into the building, they're manufactured, assembled, produced. Out comes a Boeing seven forty seven or seven fifty seven or whatever they're making these days, and that gets shipped out to the to the end customer. So that's a manufacturing property or a factory. Mm -hmm. Uh, Similar, there's a lot of overlap between a warehouse and a manufacturing property, but they are distinct. There's different elements about both. You can imagine the Boeing factory is going to have much higher ceilings, they're going to need to have a whole lot of power. They've got cranes, they've yeah. got specialized machinery in there. There's equipment and uh, robots and everything going on in there. It's it's an elaborate system. Whereas a warehouse might just be forklifts, putting pallets onto racking, retrieving as they need, storing and, and going back and forth. So gotcha. there's some overlap, both would be industrial real estate, but there are distinct differences. Yeah. And then the third one uh, would be flex properties. And flex is everything that doesn't neatly fit into either a warehouse or a uh, manufacturing property. And I, I would define it as a property that has industrial zoning. So in every city or, or most cities, anyways, mm-hmm. there's going to be a zoning ordinance or a zoning bylaw or regulation. The terminology might vary, but the idea is that the city determines what's allowed to be built or used on any individual site. Mm-hmm. And industrial is a very common classification uh, to have in there. So I would call a flex property, a building that has industrial classification. there You're permitted to use that with the city, uh, but it's not neatly a warehouse or a manufacturing property. And there's all types of uses that, that could fall in this. You could see a, a bottle depot could be an industrial zoning. I've seen churches and in inflex properties. I've seen car dealerships, art galleries, right self storage there's a plethora of different types of uses that can go into a flex property but that's that's almost a catch all I, I would say that that's everything that's not warehousing or manufacturing just to simplify it
1: yeah sure and oftentimes flex can be used uh, you know as as even office or, uh, or be- retail point. you know and things like yep. that so it's it's similar meaning in terms of the, not just the zoning but oftentimes the build usually has to be like one story or two stories or in kind of lower stories than an office, you know, and things like that. Whereas what you're talking about, the industrial, you know, it really does encompass a lot of different things. So I love the breakdown. The distribution centers has really, I think, if correct me if I'm wrong, the space that has gotten probably the most attention as as we mentioned before, just because of the, you know, the the prolification of, you know, Amazon and online sellers and just you know people just putting <laughs> buying stuff online and needing it to get you know moving with the truckers and everything like that
0: yeah, you're spot on with that. It has been driven predominantly by that e-commerce, and you could probably even track it back to when Amazon Prime came out. Uh, there is this uh, this rampant increase in demand to have things delivered immediately. Right. Like we've gone from a culture of accepting things to take three to six weeks to now, you want to have it in three to six hours. Uh, and and that that cultural shift in how we how we want things to be like in our hand immediately has just required a whole bunch of infrastructure to be built out. And that's predominantly in the forms of warehousing and supply chain uh, management in general, and just how all this needs to be coordinated to get a product from China or wherever it's made yeah. overseas, inland to a market and call it middle of, middle of America. There's a lot of steps that that have to be involved in a lot of people and real estate that touches that product before it actually gets into our hands. So this has been growing. Per, I'd say at least ten years. Like this, this distribution yeah. demand, uh, the pandemic has undoubtedly accelerated it because now, for well, at least for a good portion of time, we were forced to actually have to buy things online. You couldn't even go to a store yep. for for a period of time. So that that actually forced people's hands. And, and I'm I, I'm guessing it's probably similar with you, Yona. You, you probably know people that were very reluctant to shop online before they liked the experience of, of going to a store and buying it. And then they had no other choice. Right Now, some of those, those people, and, and like my grandparents might be a good example where they would have preferred going to a store. And now that they've adapted to this technology and have realized how convenient <laughs> it is, it's now introduced that whole new spectrum of the population to e-commerce. So everything that I've been reading and, and following suggests that this could be a demand issue. Maybe demand issue is the wrong wrong word. It could, it could be an acceleration of demand and an accompanying requirement for supply sure. uh, for more distribution space for the foreseeable future.
1: 100%. And are you working more on the, the acquisition and disposition side of things or the leasing of existing properties?
0: I'm predominantly in, on the leasing side uh although I'm I'm in a market that's about a million people so I'm not so specialized that I would only do leasing or only do uh industrial sales in a market like Chicago that has a billion square feet of industrial space. There's people that are specialized in an, a neighborhood. Right. And that's all that they know is they know one neighborhood and all they do is industrial leasing. So mm-hmm. the bigger the market you go, the de- definitely the more specialization you can have. Given the size of our market, I've, I have done sales and leasing right now, but I'm predominantly focused on the leasing side though.
1: Got you. And are you finding, I mean, you mentioned the the factories type of warehouses and things like that. What happens... And this is probably a common situation, especially with, you know, different companies going out of business and and things like that, or mergers happening where you're going to have a huge industrial space free up and, but it was built to suit. And oftentimes you find this, that, you know, have different types of factories, a great example, right? What are you going to do with this huge factory that was built to suit for, you know, a food production or something like that. And that business, you know, merged or went out of business or something like that. Walk me through some of the challenges you find about, you know, maybe trying to take on a project like that and release it up, because your end buyers or your end tenants are going to have different needs. Uh, are they going to need to rebuild out the spaces or or just find creative ways to do things?
0: Yeah, that underscores one of the main principles that I have when I'm talking to real estate investors is that you need to consider that downside risk that comes with industrial real estate. And you completely nailed it on how there can be big differences between a building that was specifically or or custom built for one tenant. And then when they leave and every tenant's going to leave eventually, it's just a matter of time. They could stay five years, they could stay 50 years, but eventually that tenant is going to move on. And you're going to be left with a building that was purpose built for them specifically that now needs to to be retrofitted, and we actually did one in our in our market where it was a former glass manufacturer. So a very customized process on how they brought in the raw materials, and uh, they, they converted it to fiberglass. Their process was actually pretty uh, complex and elaborate, uh, but it was glass and, and fiberglass was the ultimate outcome. And you can imagine they had specifically built in things in the floor. So they had cut out massive channels in the floor to allow for these big pits. Uh, In one section of the building had 47 foot ceiling heights, which is way higher than even anything we see in modern standards. And it was, it was so custom built for what they needed to do that by the time we were able to lease it to other tenants, the owner had to spend a considerable amount of money retrofitting the building. Exactly to your point. So what I typically say, to people that are that are looking at an, an industrial real estate, and I abide by this myself with my own criteria, is to always consider that downside risk first. And the exercise that I go through is what is that property worth if it's vacant? Even if there's a 10 year tenant in there, uh, that's fine. Hopefully that tenant stays solvent for that whole 10 years and you collect your rent without any issue. But what happens if that tenant did go bankrupt or they had to close down or they got bought out and they merged? There's so many variables that could influence them staying in that building. What happens if they do have to leave? And the exercise that I'd go through is what do you need to do in that building to make it approachable or or rentable for the general industrial base uh, to take it back to just the normal call it a shell uh, and then build up some improvements in there. And whatever that number is, that's what you should be factoring into your investment decision because that's your risk. That's your property level risk. It's impossible to eliminate market risk. There's just so many variables that go into that, but property level risk, that's your risk. That spread between what it's going to cost you to buy the building versus what it's going to take you to rectify any of these challenges for that previous use. So I, I always like to look at that spread. Maybe you do find a tenant that can use the uh, most of the stuff that's already in there and it doesn't require an overhaul. And then your profit has gone up as a result of lowering that spread. But if you're prepared for it and you at least know what this property is going to be worth when uh, it comes up for renewal and how much it's going to cost you to rectify some of those issues, then at least you know what you're getting into. Hundred
1: percent. That's a, a great breakdown of that because I've seen I've seen this challenge come up over and over again. Like I saw, and oftentimes, you know, you you may take a, a large property like that and you know break it up into different. Mm-hmm different units and different uh, spaces where you can, you know, lease out different uh, areas to different tenants, you know, but re- repurpose. And I, I want to just take that catchphrase of like repurpose. And because it is a popular thing that's going mm-hmm. on right now, is this something you're seeing in your market as well, where you're finding maybe empty shopping malls or empty, uh, you know, things like that, where it's going to be repurposed to a uh, uh, distribution or something like that? Yeah.
0: And before I get to that, your point about dividing that up into smaller tenants, that's exactly what we did with that fiberglass building <laughs> is we we actually divided that. I think we put five tenants in there total. It's about an 80,000 square foot building and we broke it up. Uh, so that's exactly what we did on that. There's, there's a growing appetite to look at old shopping centers that that are derelict and aren't getting a return for their investors and converting it into warehouse space, the economics are still a long way away from it being feasible in, in hot markets, especially like in Canada, where we've got less retail square foot per capita than the US does. The mm. US has a considerable amount of retail space that's just not used. Whereas in Canada, uh, like in my market specifically, there's not a single shopping mall that's vacant. Uh, they're all doing really well. Vacancy rates are low, so it doesn't make sense to forego the rental income that you're getting on those right. to convert it to a, a warehouse. But in in markets where there is a huge demand for that last mile delivery that 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 hub that's close to the re, to the population, so they can get things quickly to the door, there is people exploring, looking into old shopping malls. It comes with a couple challenges, though. Uh, One, because it's so close to people's houses, you can imagine all that truck traffic coming in, in in and out. That's exactly
1: what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. like shopping retail tends to be more in the urban centers, which uh, you know is going to cause other issues.
0: Yeah, it's exactly it. So that the whole not in my backyard thing comes into play when when residents are like, well, we don't want 100 semi tractor tractor trailers coming and going all hours of the day delivering product. And that's that's understandably so I can see where they're coming from on that. Uh, And then the second challenge is just that zoning. So going back to that part about cities having a zoning ordinance, those properties are going to be zoned for retail use. And I'm sure you've experienced this as well. City government is so bureaucratic and bogged down with red tape that to get a municipality to understand what a developer is trying to do and repurposing this is just torture, an exercise in futility for the most part. Because they, you can't get these municipal planners and and counselors and government to think yeah. outside of that that box. In this case, that box being a shopping center. <laughs> they, they they it's just it's very very difficult. So you've Got the community that is not going to support it. There's no community that's going to say, "Yeah, we'd love to have a distribution center in our backyard." Right. And you're probably not going to have a government that's sympathetic to what you're trying to do either. So it will come. I do think that that will come, but it's not going to come without some struggle along the way.
1: Yeah, it definitely comes with the challenges. I, I can hear that. What about you know? Maybe enlighten us with. I'm not in the industrial space. Not something that I, I obviously I, with what I do with conservation, I actually dabble in every. Asset class out there, but it just happens to be industrial is one of the the fewer ones that I, I see a lot of. Definitely have a couple bigger clients that uh, that do distribution centers, etc. But maybe from your perspective, are there anything anything new or anything that's kind of like hot that uh, people should be aware of that maybe they hadn't thought of of opportunities. Or, or things maybe just from from your perspective, your everyday. I mean, this is what you live day in day out. That uh, people who are not in this space should be thinking about and opportunities.
0: Yeah, I love the idea about adaptive reuse, repurposing. I I think that there's opportunities there to take a. Dramatically underperforming asset and repurpose it so that it actually serves a need. And, And that could be an older industrial property that's located close to an urban core or close to a bunch of population. And maybe it's got low ceiling heights and maybe there's some functional obsolescence there that's prohibiting it from making market rents. And someone could look at that building, look to see if the ceiling height can be raised, some of those other issues rectified, and then repurpose it for that last mile distribution space. I think for creative on real estate entrepreneurs out there who who've got the appetite to work through that process, I think that there's a big upside there. Uh, If, if I were specifically looking to build out a bigger portfolio than what I have right now, I would be also targeting things within close proximity to major transportation nodes. So anything close to an airport, if, if somebody can secure land around an airport, uh, around a rail intermodal yard, which is, those are typically where there'll be a main line on the rail and then everything, all the cargo will come there and then it'll get Transferred to trucks, so that's why it's called an intermodal yard. It, those are hot areas, and mm. my area specifically, there's so much activity going on near those intermodal yards and near the airport that it's difficult to find deals. But if I and I have to uh, suspect that there's markets all over the world sure. where there is a major international airport or an intermodal yard where the real estate community hasn't caught on to that yet. And I would be targeting those areas, whether you could just land bank it for a while or perhaps uh, build out, buy a quarter section and then break those out in a smaller. 10, 15 acre lots and sell those off. I think that that's where there's going to be such huge demand for, uh, for high quality real estate. That's just located close to, to an airport. And you can, you can appreciate how an airport for people that need stuff quickly, it just has to come by air. It just, if you're getting something from overseas, it's a 14 to 20 day journey to go over the, the sea in a cargo ship. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's going to come by plane and there's going to need to be massive distribution space in close proximity to these airports. And it's happening all over. It'll be a little bit of that diamond in the rough. Someone would have to hunt to find these opportunities. If I had scale right now and I could focus on one thing, that's what I'd be looking for.
1: Awesome. Excellent tips. Love it. That's exactly what I was looking for. And it's something I certainly wasn't thinking about, but as you were saying it, it just like put off light bulbs in my head. (laughs) I was, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm going to have to go back and listen to it because it's hard to, you know, when, when you start hearing an idea and you start thinking about different opportunities, hard to focus, but that was very insightful. I appreciate that. Uh, I want to transition now, Chad, to what we call the final four. These are four questions that I ask all my guests. And the first question for you is going to be, what's the worst job that you ever had?
0: So when I was younger and going to, going to school during the summer, I worked at a restaurant and I was a bartender during the evening. So my shift was, if I can recall correctly, like five to midnight and then, and I did that five days a week. And then four days a week, I, I worked at a steel factory as well. And I would have to, I'd have to be at the steel factory at 6. AM and I'd work till three. And then I'd go home, have a quick bite to eat, and then go to work and bartend until midnight. And I was seven days a week. And then there were two days where it overlapped from 6 a.m. till midnight. And the bartending was fun. I really enjoyed that job. So that was probably one of the best jobs I had. That steel factory was so fatiguing. I was always so exhausted at the end of it. And it was just it was hard labor. It was really hard labor. Yeah. But the, the fun part about it is that I was, I was nineteen twenty when I was doing that, I was working in an industrial building. So <laughs> even though I didn't, didn't think I had like a whole lot of knowledge about industrial real estate, when I looked back on it and I only did that for Two months it was over the summer, so my memory is a little hazy on it. But I was working in an industrial factory, and it was the worst job I ever had.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there you go, from from best to wor- from worst to best. Yep, and uh, it's that's incredible. Second question: What's a book you've read that's given you a paradigm shift?
0: Well, it's it's funny you actually bring that up because I was on a call yesterday and I was actually uh, talking about this book. So I have it right here. I don't know if this will if my camera out yeah, a focus go. and it's and it's backwards too. But it's called uh, Transfluence and it's written by a guy named Walt Rakovich. So he used to be the CEO of Prologis, which is the largest property owner in the world. They on how his outlook would have been being the CEO of that company. But what I found absolutely inspiring was just his leadership style. And I guess I had a a preconceived notion that CEOs of a big Fortune 1000 company would be these big, arrogant, confident uh, guys who – think that they didn't have all the answers and right. and you should just be lucky to to be talking to them. He's the exact opposite. He was a super humble. Uh, I actually got to interview him as well. So I got to spend an hour uh, talking to him and and everything that he said to me in the interview was a, a direct response from uh, what I got from his book. And he was just a super humble guy. He acknowledged that to win, you got to do it as a team. If they succeed, it's the result of the team's work. If it's a failure, then that's just my error for not leading everybody through there. So I just came away from that being like this this is a guy that I could really look up to that had tremendous success in his in his business uh, life. He's a, har- a MBA from Harvard, so he's a super smart guy as well, but he was just such a humble leader that it, it in my much more narrow capacity and on some of the things that that I do in a leadership capacity, it really just reinforced that that idea that you, you can't be someone that has all the answers and, and refuses to make a mistake. And even if you do make a mistake, you don't acknowledge it. You can be humble and you can be introspective and you can admit that things didn't work your way and you try to involve everybody. So it's a group decision. So I love that book. It was one of my favorite books that that I've read of, of recent.
1: That's awesome. Well, we'll definitely put that on the show. It's first time I'm hearing of it, Transfluence. But it sounds from your description of it, something that I resonate with a lot already. So uh, maybe uh, I'll check it out. Maybe not. Maybe- <laughs> <laughs> we'll it's, it's
0: worth reading. I, I would recommend it. I, it's I, on the book I, list. That's for sure. Yeah. O- over the holidays, I probably gave out a dozen copies of it. So that's, that's, awesome. that's how much I like that one.
1: Amazing. All right. Awesome. So we'll definitely put that on the list and uh, move it up along the list as well. Third question for you, Chad, what is a skill or talent that you would like to learn?
0: I'd love to learn another language. uh, Even though Canada's bilingual and and a lot of people can speak it, I have a very pedantic level of knowledge on on French. And I've tried learning Spanish in the past. I even tried learning uh, Mandarin at one point, and I just failed miserably. And I never had the had the dedication to see it through, but I'd love to learn another language. That's that would be on my list on the next 10 years to try and do.
1: There you go. Yeah. It, it definitely takes dedication. It really does. And more than anything, and this is a really common answer that people give on this show to learn another language, which it is, is, is really a, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. it really does take a lot of discipline and a lot of dedication and more than anything Im- immersion. You you really do need to immerse yourself and uh, not be given the option to speak another language, to go back to English. like You really have to just push yourself out of your comfort zone just to start doing that. But once you do, it's incredible the power that another language can have because especially when you get to the level where you start thinking in that other language, it's incredible. It really is. It's powerful. It works the brain in a totally different way and allows you to to learn a different culture as well. Because once you start thinking in another language, you start thinking along the lines of, of the culture that you're immersed in, which is there are you know hundreds, uh, probably thousands of different cultures or, uh, around the world based on languages. So that's an incredible thing. So wish you luck on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I all need it. <laughs> Fourth and final question, what does success mean to you?
0: Oh, that's a great final question. I, I would say freedom. And I've said this before, somewhat facetiously is that I'm temporarily motivated to be permanently lazy. And, uh, that's only somewhat, uh, joking because I, I, I am working quite hard, uh, right now, but I do have a vision down the road of, of being able to not, not lie on a beach for, for, the whole, cause I'd go crazy just being that inactive, but having the ability just to do whatever I want, whether that's to, uh, to take a, a last minute trip or to learn learn a language without having the pressure of, of life getting in the way. I, I think success is freedom, freedom, just to do whatever I want. That's, that's what I'd be chasing.
1: That's awesome. Uh, that's amazing definition. And really it is about, you know, finding whatever the success means to you, but but finding the opportunity where you can basically do whatever you want and not have to rely on anything else or anyone else to make those decisions, have that freedom, Love it. Thank you so much, Chad. Where where can our listeners find you or reach out to you if they want to?
0: Uh, I'd love it if they checked out my YouTube channel. As uh, as you could guess, I just talk about industrial real estate and, and I, I love it. I'm very passionate about it. Uh, so if they just search industrial real estate, I think I'm one of the few people that's talking about it regularly. So they'll find my channel uh, or or they can just search my name, Chad Griffiths. Uh, and then I'm also active on LinkedIn. Uh, you and I are are connected on there, which I'm, I love seeing all of your posts. Uh, so I usually check LinkedIn uh, daily as well. So either LinkedIn or YouTube would be awesome.
1: Awesome. Yeah. And we'll definitely got a lot out of that uh, that opportunity. I've checked out a few of your other videos as well. Industrial real estate is such a incredible topic. And there's so much to learn about different asset classes and different markets and like you brought up some great ideas for opportunities in the coming years. So thank you again for joining. This is really fun conversation. And I I hope our listeners got a lot out of it. I certainly did. So I appreciate you taking the time.
0: Yeah, man. My pleasure, Yonan. Thanks for everything that you do as well. I know how much time and effort you're putting into doing this. And I know you're well over 200 episodes now too. So a big compliment to you for all the hard work and, and effort you've put into creating such a great show.
1: I appreciate that. And thanks to our listeners, guys. If you're made it to this point, I owe you a huge credit, you know. Round of applause to you because it takes a lot to spend uh, spend your time with us. So thank you again, and remember, until next time, the best advice comes only when you ask. Real quick, I have one question for you. Did you like this episode?